Good morning, Reality Vancouver. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm senior pastor of Grace Toronto. And it is my pleasure to be with you this morning. I have known about you and been praying for you since the very early days of your inception, having known Chris for years in church planting circles that we served in together, and also John, uh, both personally as a friend of Joe's and uh, professionally as I was uh, actually urging him a little while ago to, to become your pastor. So I am thrilled to be able to serve you today. You are doing the same sermon series we are, the book of Mark. And so we are together, we have come to this point, we have come to the eighth chapter of the book of Mark, which is the climactic moment in the book of Mark, the hinge passage actually, and we're going to read it together now. So read with me, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 7. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and after three days rise. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. This is God's word. Who is Jesus, and what does it mean to follow him? No matter where you are in your journey of faith, wherever you are in your journey of life, these two questions face you always. They challenge you. Sometimes we do not see it, yet these two questions are always there in front of us. At reality, as we continue this series in the life of Jesus as described in the Gospel of Mark, we come now to one of these climactic passages in the whole of the Gospel, precisely just about halfway through this Gospel. This passage marks the hinge, the turning point in the literary structure of the book. Up to this scene, Jesus has been wandering around Israel, seemingly almost haphazardly, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about it, healing people, doing miracles, giving signs of who he is. After this climactic scene, this passage, and I would argue also the one right after this about the transfiguration, after those passages, the book of Mark turns quite abruptly to Jesus' focused journey toward Jerusalem, his impending arrest, trial, suffering, and death. And here, right here, Mark gives us a quick but incredibly searching and sobering portrayal of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. It's, it's that simple, but as we're about to see, simple in the gospel doesn't mean easy. 
We'll start with the first point, the first question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, this part of the story probably has the most relevance for those of us who are investigating Christianity. But those of us who've been Christians a long time, the end part of this first point is going to bite us as well. So let's all listen carefully. Jesus begins this passage by asking the disciples, who do the people out there think that I am? And they give three different options. One answer is people simply think he's John the Baptist, who was a famous prophet, probably more well-known than Jesus by many, a contemporary of Jesus. Widely seen as perhaps the prophet who's going to foretell and be the forerunner of the Messiah. Another group thinks he's Elijah, the uh, Old Testament prophet, not exactly reincarnated, but someone coming after the spirit of Elijah, as was promised in the last few verses of Malachi. He would return and announce the coming of the Messiah and bring upon Israel a restoration. A third group thought Jesus was merely a prophet. Now, all three answers thought Jesus had some special gift from God, some special anointing or insights into his teaching and his ministry and his calling. But note what they had in common. None of them thought Jesus was who he actually was, the promised Messiah of the, of the Jewish people, the Savior. By the way, the Savior of you and me. They thought he was special. They thought his teachings were compelling and interesting. Many thought he was a special messenger from God, but not God himself, not God come in human form, not the king of the cosmos come to earth, his creation, to redeem it. So I want to pause just for a moment and say this, this attitude prevalent in that culture then is actually quite similar to attitudes we see toward Jesus in our culture today. Many secular people think Jesus was an inspired moral and ethical teacher. I used, to, I used to share my testimony on the streets of Vancouver, and I would get this response time and time again. He's wise. He's a great teacher. Very spiritual insight that he had. But there was a lot of skepticism on the streets of Vancouver that he could be more than that. People were just that skeptical back then. I realized that many of these people who called Jesus a prophet or called him John the Baptist, many of them had actually seen him do miracles. Many of them had been part of the crowd that he'd fed four or 5,000 men, which meant probably ten to 12,000 people. They'd seen him heal people. They'd seen him do miraculous things. But natural human skepticism was then what it is now. The idea that a human being could be anything more than just a human being was as bizarre then as it is now. So I want to say, if you're here and you're a bit skeptical about this claim that Jesus is more than a mere human, Mark, the author of this gospel, he gets you. We who are Christians, we get you. It isn't normal for people to go around claiming to be God, and people who do that generally get sent for mental health examinations. It takes extraordinary evidence to overcome natural skepticism because that's just the way the world works. We don't see miracles every day. But then Jesus asks for his disciples and their response. And they'd been with him every day. They'd seen miracle upon miracle, healing upon healing, exorcism upon exorcism, the feeding of several thousand several times. They had been skeptics too. But their skepticism had been overcome by the weight of the accumulated evidence. Think about that. They'd seen deaf people get their hearing back, blind people 
get their sight back. People raised from death itself. Peter here, speaking for the disciples, says, you're the Christ. Christ means anointed one, Messiah. It's, it's a title. You are the one promised by the Old Testament. And so the first part of the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is given here by Peter on behalf of the disciples. He is the Christ, God's Messiah. He is the final king in Jewish mindsets. But that's only the first part of the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Because Jesus is about to reveal the second part. I'm I'm not just the Christ. I'm the Christ who's going to go to my death. I'm not just the king. I'm the king who's going to hang on a cross. And it is here, in describing the fullness of who he is and what it means for what he's about to do, that we find that even mature, committed Christians struggle to fully acknowledge Jesus. Verse 31, we pick it up. He began to teach that it was necessary. That word necessary flows into the next bunch of phrases. That the Son of Man should suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and and scribes, and be killed and rise after three days. Four things, he says, are necessary. And Jesus, describing the work he comes to do, says his calling is part of the revelation of his identity. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And he must rise again. It's not an option. You can't separate this from his identity. This calling is part and parcel of who he is. Who he is helps define what he came to do. What he came to do helps reveal who he is. And he's saying to his Jewish followers, you want to acknowledge me as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the final king? I need you to understand more deeply. I need to revise and broaden your conception of what I came to do. I did not come merely to save you from political oppression to the Roman Empire, though my teachings and my followers will eventually help upend the Roman Empire as we know it. I did not come to restore Israel to geopolitical power and cultural influence. I came to suffer for you because my kingdom is not won through political and military victories, but through suffering and shame, rejection and death. I will win my victory by spreading my arms wide and allowing nails to be driven into my limbs. And I will be hung like drying meat upon a cross, hung until I die. Victory through humiliation, weakness, rejection and death. Well, what happens? Do the apostles go, amen, I knew that all the time, let me just write that down in my notes? No. Through their spokesman, Peter, they rebuke Jesus. This is offensive to Jesus' followers. And most of us who are Christians must admit it's alien and tough for us. Who wants to follow a rejected and misunderstood religious leader? Who wants to follow someone who is scorned, laughed at, spit upon, hated, derided, and sneered at. Peter, representing the disciples, represents all of us in his frustration with the idea of a king who must go to a cross. That's just not what we want. Why? Because like Peter and the disciples, we want a respectable faith. We want a respectable leader. We want a Messiah who our culture respects not one they reject. Because we crave respect. We crave comfort and convenience. We crave the easy road and the applause of our culture. 
We want to ride down the easy current of the river of our culture and end up in the arms of God. We want both this world's comforts and the comforts of the next. And Jesus, seeing in Peter, not only Peter's rebuke, but the disciples' rebuke, and the revulsion and questioning in you and my eyes, and the temptation of every believer to balk at this idea, cuts him off, and he rebukes Peter in front of them. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not seeking the things of God, but the things of men. Let's, let's kind of dive into these phrases. Get behind me, Satan. Now, we, we may think he's disowning him or being very disdainful, but in context, understand, in a Jewish context, when a rabbi travels, his disciples follow him, literally follow him to show that they are following his teachings. They physically show it. So to get behind me is to get back into the place of followership that a disciple is supposed to give to their rabbi. It's, it, he's not rejecting Peter. He's disciplining and correcting Peter. He uses the word Satan, but that's also a word that can mean adversary. Adversary, excuse me. Probably properly pronounced Satan. It just means someone who opposes you. And so that's what Jesus is saying here to Peter. You're directly opposing my mission. And he elaborates and says, you're setting your mind. You're, the Greek word here means a deliberate planning from a set mindset. You're developing a settled, deliberate attitude of rejection of my whole mission. Well, what is this mission that Jesus holds so dear that even Peter can be seen as opposing? It's to die for you and me. It's to be a scapegoat for us, not just to be the royal king of the Jewish people, but to come down into creation as its creator to deliver all of humanity from the great oppression, the great slavery that so far exceeds political or economic slavery and oppression, the slavery of sin and death. Jesus came to deliver you and me from the guilt of our sin, to be the one who bears our guilt for us and the one who breaks the power of moral corruption in us. This is who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the King. But he is also the suffering scapegoat who takes our place and bears our debt and takes the judgment due us. We have to confront the reality of what this means because Jesus is pointing out for the rest of history, Jesus will be seen the way he's being seen here. To follow Jesus is to come to terms with this reality. It will not be comfortable. It will not be convenient. Because he who came was not a respectable ruler, but a rejected scapegoat. And in that scapegoat, in that paying for our sin, is the redemption and the hope of the world. Jesus, therefore, expands on who he is. And this leads right into the next question we have. If he's the Christ on the cross, the king who goes to death, if that's who he is, what does it mean for us to follow him? And he tells us it means to follow him on the road to the cross and to experience a kind of death. Verse 34, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life because of me and the gospel will save it. Jesus here laying down the meaning of what it means to follow him says something actually that we don't need 
much explaining. A child could understand what he says. Deny yourself. Take all of your desires. Take all of your agendas, your dreams for your life that you are driving as the driver of your own life, that you hold strongly in your hand and in your heart. Take those things and give them up. Open your hand. Let God do with them as they will. Deny yourself. Let something else fill your hand. Pick up the cross. What does that mean? He explains it. Take up your cross. Now the cross in this day was a kind of punishment, and you know this, that was particular for its humiliation, its public rejection and reviling, and the pain of the death. People who had been convicted and sentenced to die by crucifixion had to take up the cross piece, the patibulum, and they had to carry the patibulum out of the city, usually through a gauntlet of jeering people who had gathered for just this moment to witness this. And you have to carry the cross and endure the public shame, usually stripped almost naked. It is a pathway of public humiliation and rejection toward physical death. And Jesus says, I walk that path for you. Now follow that path. I bore that shame. I was exposed to that humiliation. Do you want to believe and follow me? Do you want my forgiveness? Do you want my cleansing? Come on, follow me on this road because it is the road to forgiveness and cleansing. It's the road of death and shame and humiliation. You must live a life of self-sacrifice and self-denial and you must publicly identify yourself with a rejected and humiliated crucified Savior. That's the only way to follow me. Give up your life. Give up your rights to your desires and goals. Open your hand and your heart. And then fill your hand with my cross. Publicly identify with me. and Bear the shame with me. On the day that I became a Christian, I had a striking personal existential experience with God. But I knew the moment that Christ confronted me in the apartment of a friend who'd been witnessing to me. I knew that all my friends, except perhaps this one, would mock me. All my family would probably not understand, and it turned out I was right about that. To follow Jesus was not a popular decision. I I pictured Jesus calling me, and I pictured Jesus alone, separated from everyone else I knew, and if I went to him, I was turning my back on them, and they were turning their back on me. And that's what happened. But my friends, it is what happens. The only way to follow Jesus is the way of the open hand. The only way to follow Jesus is to pick up his cross instead of your agenda. All the things that you've closed your hand around, all the things that you've stored up in your heart, you've got to be willing to let them go so you can pick up with your hand the suffering and the humiliation and the identification with Jesus. To the rich young ruler, Jesus said, give up all your money and come follow me. Just an example. Now, Jesus tells why this is so. And he says here, because your life, and in this he means your eternal life, your, your spiritual life. Other translations other than the CSB call it your, your soul. 
is not all there is. This life is not all there is. Your eternal life is key. You are made to live forever. You have an eternal life waiting for you. That life is priceless. That's the point that he makes here. What can you give in exchange for that life? Whatever you get from this life can never compare to the eternity and the infinity of that life. That life is priceless. What will you give this life up for? Stuff in this life that lasts 80 or 90 years? Don't be foolish. So Jesus says, if you choose the fleeting pleasures of this world over communion with God through Jesus Christ forever, if you forfeit eternal life with God, then you are to be pitied above all things, above all people, because it's not worth the exchange. So Jesus asked the question, are you ashamed of me? Because if you are, on the final day when I come back and the judgment of all people happens, I will be ashamed of you. I won't be your scapegoat. I will be the one who disowns you because you were afraid to own me. Do you want to put down your cross when you're walking through life and you feel the crowds rejecting you? Do you want to just kind of put it down and slip back into the crowd, get back into a life of comfort? Are you tired of being rejected, divided or disdained, derided or disdained? Then uh, Jesus says, you can't put the cross down and slip back into the crowd without putting that eternal life down and leaving it there too. They come together. Do you find these words hard? They're not my words. They're Jesus' words. Now, there are three types of people that I want to speak to right now. Three types who are listening. And I want to speak to each one of you in turn. Firstly, for those of you who are not yet Christians but are interested, are curious, we're glad that you are here. But we don't want to bait and switch you. This is Christianity. Jesus isn't some good teacher. The accumulated evidence of his life says he's God himself come into human form. He didn't just come to enlighten us with some good moral teaching. He came to die for us. For you. The sin, the pride, the selfishness in you, that has accumulated for you a moral debt to God, a guilt that you will spend eternity paying if you don't go to Jesus and say, would you pay it for me? Jesus wants you to fully understand what's at stake here. This life, this eternal life with God. Are you willing to forfeit eternal life with God for a few more comforts and pleasures in this world? Don't do it. Don't do it. You must entrust your future to his grace and his guidance. Open the hand. Give your life up to God. Give control of your life up to God and receive the forgiveness of him who went to the cross for you and having received that forgiveness, then walk with him and follow him. Now, for those of us who are Christians, I want to break you up into two different types because I find there are, there are many types, but for this purposes, I want to speak about two. Firstly, the, the people who represent what Peter was representing. We want Jesus, we want his grace, we want his forgiveness, we want his sacrifice, but we struggle with his rejection, his shame, and his humiliation. We do like our comfort. We want to follow Jesus without taking up our cross, though. We want, we want to slip back into the crowd when it gets too hot. We want to somehow keep our soul and yet have a great, comfortable life. 
Tim Keller, who is a, a mentor and a hero uh, of mine, uh, in one of his latest interviews said he and Kathy did an inventory of things that really nourished them. He'd been in ministry for decades, strong Christian leader, people look up to him, and yet this is what he and Kathy figured out. Kathy figured out that going to places on vacation that were beautiful and that she had Tim's full attention because he wasn't driven by work, these things nourished her and these things made her year. She, she invested so much and got so much from them. Tim, it was his ministry accomplishments that he could keep ticking off. But here's the problem they noticed. He said, Kathy and I realized we were trying to make a heaven out of this earth but we always had to come back from those places. And the accomplishments quickly got forgotten and replaced with the next ones. So there was no real resting. He says it took cancer for him to realize that in his own way, even as a mature Christian, he was trying to make a heaven out of this earth. How about you? Are we tempted to do that? Then let's get back behind Jesus. Let's get back to following him. Let's repent. Let's list out the things. Put, make a list this week that really nourish you, that you really want to see happen. Bucket list things. Things that you really feel you need to have to be whole. Write them out. Admit. Give them to Jesus. Say, I want to follow you, but I also want this list. And then ask the Spirit of Jesus himself. The Spirit who lives in you if you're a Christian. Ask him to give you the power to open the hand and to let go of those desires, to give them to Jesus. The Spirit of God gives you this power because it's the Spirit of Jesus who gave up his life. And he will give you the power to open the hand and open the heart and surrender to Jesus the bucket list, the things that you hold dear. He gives you this power. Because Jesus doesn't just give you the grace of forgiving your sin. He gives you the power to let go of your sin. In Colossians, so that's what I want you to do. Remember, these things that, that you love, they're not bad things. I'm, I'm not calling you to feel guilty about them. I'm calling you to love Jesus a little more. That you're willing to say, I love you more. I love the life with you more. And so I'm willing to give whatever of these up you want to give up. I, I need to give up. I want to change any of these things you want to change. They're yours. That's the Peter types, the comfortable, want to slip back into the crowd types. But there's a second group that, that I've noticed amongst Christians, and that, I'm going to call them the afflicted types. They don't show up here, but I still want to speak to you. You've tried to live this way. You're discouraged you feel that you're not measuring up to this life of self-denial. You feel these temptations. You fight them. You want to be more like Jesus, but you end up feeling guilty and worldly and polluted. If you're there, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. Firstly, is it possible that I'm actually still carrying the guilt of my sin even though as a Christian, Jesus has forgiven all of it. I find when I probe people who feel this way, many times they feel like I'm not measuring up to God and I'm really disappointing, I'm still guilty of my sin. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all 
our trespasses. Colossians 2, verse 13. Let me read to you Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're free of condemnation. But ask yourself that question. You may still be holding on to the guilt of it. Secondly, ask yourself, am I discouraged because I've been trying to follow Jesus too much in my own strength? I can't. You can't do it. Jesus couldn't do it. Jesus was ministered to by the Holy Spirit every day. He went to God all the time in prayer for help. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, angels literally had to come and minister to him so he could keep going. Are you doing it in your own power? Because the Spirit of Jesus Christ who lives in you is there to give you the power, but not just kind of a brawny, I need to do this, dutiful kind of power, but a sweet joy in following Jesus on the cross. Listen to how the Spirit of Jesus is called to operate in you. He makes Jesus more beautiful to you. Romans chapter 8, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear again. Instead, you've received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if his children, then his heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Several days ago, probably a couple weeks ago, I was discouraged for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them being in COVID, I realized that too, many of my, of, uh, of, too much of my identity is wrapped up in ministry accomplishments, a lot like uh, Tim Keller. I was getting too nourished from those, and COVID was taking them away, and I was getting too discouraged by that. Then I read a few pages of a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Toward Sinners by the Puritan author Thomas Goodwin. And this book, possibly the best book on the heart of Christ ever written, In this book, Goodwin expounds upon the phrase Jesus utters in John chapter 14, where in John 14, 3, Jesus says, I go, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you'll be also. Goodwin expounds on that and says, these last words betray Christ's entire affection. It is as if he had said, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am, so we may never part again. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company, if I do not have you with me. My heart is so set upon you, and if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. Do you you hear what Goodwin says? He says, Christ cannot just live in heaven alone without us, not because he needs anything from us but because his heart of affection and love toward us is so strong, so infinitely, beautifully, unstoppable, that he has determined to bring us to be with him forever. He sent his spirit so his love could always be felt and experienced by us. He is preparing a place for us. He will come back. We can be assured of his love from what he did on the cross. We can be assured of his love for the promises he has of coming back for us in the future. We can be assured of his love through the Spirit who wants to communicate his love to us through the Spirit of adoption. Why should we take up our cross and follow Jesus? Because of what he did for us. What he's coming to do for us. Shows us who he is.
And who he is, is the Christ who is worthy. Take up your cross, for you follow the one who took up his cross for you, and he is worthy of everything. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and grace to us. How lovely you are. How beautiful your heart. How gracious your disposition. How infinite your compassion. How lovely your grace. Help us to take up the cross and follow you out of sheer love and joy and adoration of you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.